Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. What happens when food traditions bounce back and forth across a border? Take the Sizzler. Created by an Indian restaurateur after a visit to California, it became a popular dish in Mumbai. It's a crazy melange of pasta, grilled onions, paneer, samosas, cabbage, shredded cheese, all piled on a sizzling hot platter. And now it's being served here in the Bay Area at some Indian restaurants, having made its way back across the Pacific. Or what about what the food writer Solejo calls assimilation foods, those delicious concoctions that immigrant families make from a mix of home country technique and American supermarket ingredients. It's not fusion, the restaurant cuisine, but something much more interesting. We'll discuss it all after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here's the thing about me. I love any story that takes place in a strip mall in Milpitas. Or really any place like Milpitas, I'm sorry. It's just who I am. And if you want to get a Sizzler, you're going to head to the eastern shore of the South Bay to Milpitas, and you're going to go to the Milan Sweet Center, where KQED's own Aditi Bandlamudi got her first taste of the showy dish. She wrote about it in a great story, which you can read on kqed.org, The Sizzler, the California origin story behind one of India's flashiest dishes, And she joins us this morning to tell us all about it. Welcome. Hey, Alexis. Hey. We're also joined by Luke Sai, of course, as this is the latest edition of our continuing partnership with KQED Food, All You Can Eat, where we discuss the Bay Area's food cultures. Welcome, Luke. Thanks, Alexis. Glad to be here again. Uh, Aditi, let's start with you. How did you first learn about the Sizzler? You know, I learned about the Sizzler in, I guess, a way that like most people learn about new foods where, you know, it's like it's it's, you know, my husband is from Mumbai. um, So we have different food journeys um, when it comes to the kinds of foods that we've eaten and that we've grown up eating. And one day he turns to me, he's sitting with his best friend who is also from Mumbai, and they both turn and look at me and they're like, have you ever had a sizzler before? And I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what is, what it like sizzler? You're like, like, you mean the delicious buffet? Exactly. All you can eat fried shrimp? <laughs> exactly. And they're like, They've refused to tell me what it is. Um, and they're like, you just have to see what it is. You just have to see. And I feel like there's some prank that's like coming up. Um, but one day we we head down to Milan Suites and we get Sizzlers. And what I saw was like nothing I had ever seen before. I mean, can you describe what it actually looks like on a on a plate? Because I mean, when we're telling when we're telling people what the ingredients are, it sounds like pretty wild. 
I mean, it's it's wild to see. Like, I'm going to describe it and it's going to be really hard to visualize. But but here goes. So imagine one of those like sizzling hot cast iron skillets. Mm -hmm. And on top of that is like either noodles or pasta. And mixed in with that pasta is like grilled vegetables and some paneer like cubed paneer, which is like Indian cottage cheese. And then on top of that is this like, um, it'll be like samosas or like veg cutlets. And then on top of that will be some like coleslaw mix, like shredded lettuce or like cabbage. or And then, you know, mixed with like a thinly sliced um It'll be like uh, carrots. And then on top of that is Mexican cheese. And it comes out sizzling hot, making this big noise and lots of, you know, it's very flashy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So where did this come from? Like what? I mean, obviously, a dish like this is probably going to be shrouded in some mystery Oh, totally. I mean, it's it's sort of in in finding the origin story of it, it kind of felt like I was reading the lore of like any food, like how any <laughs> food got developed. It's basically so the story goes, um, there was this Indian businessman named Feroz Irani who came to the U.S. on some trip. We're not exactly sure where he came, but we know he, he came to California and he went to the Sizzler Steakhouse, the California chain steakhouse, all-you-can-eat buffet, great shrimp, steak. He went there and he saw that they were serving food on a sizzling hot platter and he got so excited. So he came back to India and decided that he was going to make it desi. So he decided to make his own version of a Sizzler which basically consists of, you know, what I just said, like grilled, you know, vegetables yeah. and rice. Not a, and not a steak. Not yeah. a steak. Not a steak. Though you can get sizzlers with uh, meat on it. Um, and basically he, he started selling them and very soon they took off. And so now like how like how popular is this in Mumbai? So your husband had had it, his friend, you know, like, is it just something that people know as a food of Mumbai? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's basically the way that my husband described it to me. It's basically the kind of food that you eat when you go out and you want to have a good time. It's, um, you know, you would eat it in a restaurant. So it's not really something that you could cook at home. So it was something that you would go out and you would have it. My husband describes the first time he had a sizzler was at one of his like well-to-do friends birthday parties. Um, it's like one of those things. It's a dish that you would eat to feel fancy, to feel yeah. like you're doing something fun. Now, the place you went to is in Milpitas. Sounds wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about that place and whether that's the only place to get it or if there are different Sizzlers now, you know, around the Bay Area? Well, there are different. I mean, you can get Sizzlers, you know, across California, but the the number of restaurants is, is a little small. Milan Suites seems to be the, you know, the most famous one. Um you know, it's a small shop that is in Milpitas. They've been around since the late 1990s, and they didn't always sell Sizzlers. They came, um, you know, the the owner, uh, Sanjay Patel, his family owned a sweets shop in England, and then they moved over here. And... Um, Shortly after they opened up their Milpitas location, they wanted to change things up and they wanted to, you know, make something a little special. So they decided to start selling Sizzlers. And their version of a Sizzler, I, I believe, is very different from what you would get in India because what Sanjay has done is he's made it a little more Americanized. So mm. like, you know, the pasta is mixed in the sauce that's kind of like a vodka sauce. And there's like a mint chutney that also has like a little bit of, you know, it's almost like a pesto. Um, so it's like kind of more American. There are other places where they're going to have different flavors. 
Luke Sai, KQD food editor. I think of you as someone who has heard of absolutely every food uh, that you can consume in the Bay Area. <laughs> had you heard of the Sizzler before this story? I had never heard of it in my life, <laughs> you know. And and so as soon as Aditi sort of pitched the story to me, I was like, "Well, this is like the prototypical KQED food story. Like, of course you need to write this story." And and what I love about it is, um, you know, and and I think a lot of um. A lot of people who subsequently read the story, like that was sort of like the overwhelming feedback was like, oh, my gosh, like, what is this amazing, wild sounding thing? And why have I never heard of it? And even a lot of um, Indian uh, readers um, had that same response. And so I think what I love about the story of the Sizzler is it kind of reminds me that there's this sort of authenticity trap um, that a lot of um, immigrants um, like myself fall into when we think about um, the food of our sort of home country of origin. You know, we kind of romanticize this version of the food from like 20 years ago or 30 years ago, maybe when we lived there or when we first visited, um, as though the cuisine were sort of frozen in time, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And But of course, like Indian food and Chinese food and Mexican food and all these different cuisines aren't frozen in time. Like they're constantly evolving, like chefs in India and in Taiwan are coming up with new dishes. um, And there are new trends um, and new dishes that are coming out all the time. And what I love about the Bay Area is that we have these food enclaves, you know, where um, there are restaurants that are opening that are catering to sort of newer immigrants, or there are these like sort of second generation chefs who are like savvy on social media. So they know kind of what the new things are in Mumbai or in Taipei or wherever. And now they're bringing these dishes um, to the U.S. And so it's just like that was like quesabiria, which I've written about a lot, you know, the the sort of Mexican birria tacos. That's what that was to me. You know, that Mm -hmm. was like... um, initially no one sort of knew about it except for like savvy young Mexican Americans who were on Instagram, you know, (laughs) and that's what, that's what the uh, Indian Sizzler story is to me too. I love that there are still things like that, that even if you've been eating Indian food for 30 years, you can still discover something new like that. Hey, Aditi, so you didn't grow up with a scissor, but what kind of foods did you grow up when you were, did you uh, eat growing up when, you know, that are kind of this mix of, of cultures? Totally. I mean, you know, I grew up in, you know, I spent like the first part of my life in Ohio. And then the, you know, when I I, like grew up in middle school and, you know, the rest of my schooling was in Georgia. We didn't grow up, you know, there was an Indian store, but it was an hour away. And, you know, a lot of the foods that my mom made were um, foods that, you know, she really had to create on the spot. And also like her kids were trying to assimilate to life in America. Um, You know, we were like we were American kids. So we wanted peanut butter and jelly and like (laughs) pasta and pizza. So she had to make things that were Indianized and also American. So, you know, we grew up having like paneer tacos or, (laughs) you know, she would make this pasta. We call it mom pasta because she she would put, you know, it would be like penne with like a white sauce. But then she'd put like cumin and coriander and bell peppers and like all these vegetables. And it felt Indian, but also American. It it was like a very special way to to try to like feel and identify two cultures. 
See, this plays in perfectly to my theory of food, which is that essentially everything is, can be, or should be tacos because tortillas Amen. are perfect. <laughs> and so they should be incorporated into as many things as, as possible. Um, Luke, how about you? Did you, are, are there foods like this that, that go into this category for you, kind of old world technique, American supermarket ingredients? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I've I've spoken on the air before about um, the cold noodles that my mom would make, which she would make with just like Jif, Jif, you know, supermarket peanut butter, even though that might not be what they would use in Taiwan or in China to make these cold noodles. Um, you know, one of the first things that I learned how to cook, you know, as a sort of like teenager um, and, you know, sort of as a, as a young person was fried rice, you know, and that's mm-hmm. like a classic sort of thing where the very purpose of the dish is to sort of repurpose leftovers. And when you're living in the U.S. and you don't necessarily, especially when I was younger, you don't necessarily have access to, you know, like Chinese sausages or to like char, char shao, you know, all the time. Um, you would make it with. But you got hot dogs. <laughs> you would. You had hot dogs. You had deli meats. Um, you had ketchup. You know, you had maybe some leftover rotisserie chicken. You maybe had some like steak that was left over from the day before, and so you put that in your fried rice. Um, but I think like every immigrant um, person that I know sort of has these types of stories. You know, my wife's, uh, my father-in-law, my wife's uh, dad. Uh, you would always talk about how he would make this dish that he that he invented that he's very proud of called uh, Campbell soup mien you know and and so it was like his dish where he would take Campbell's beef and vegetable soup and then he would basically boil boxed pasta and add it to it and it was like a sort of bootleg neuro uh, mien you know like a bootleg beef Chinese beef noodle soup um, and I just think, that's, Beautiful. you know, nece- yeah. necessity is the mother invention. And, <laughs> exactly. and so if Campbell's soup is what you have easy access to, you can kind of make that into a Chinese thing if you want yeah. to. We are talking about these kinds of food mashups. We're joined by KQED food editor Luke Sai and KQED reporter Aditi Banlamudi. Her article, The Sizzler, the California origin story behind one of India's flashiest dishes, inspired the show. And it's up on the site now. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I am Alexis Madrigal, and we are talking about these kind of food mashups where we take old world technique and add American supermarket ingredients to great effect. Uh, We are joined by KQED food editor Luke Tsai and KQED reporter 
Aditi Banlamudi, and she's got a great article up on kqd.org, The Sizzler, the California origin story behind one of India's flashiest dishes. And we want to hear from you as well. Do you have one of these stories of something you know, your parents made for you uh, when they came to this country and encountered the American supermarket uh, and, and came up with new kinds of dishes. Uh, the number is 866-733-6786. Maybe you're that parent and you're making those things for your kid. The number 866-733-6786. Maybe you live in a big house full of different cultures and you're all sharing and swapping techniques and ingredients. You can get in touch. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And, of course, the email is forum at kqed.org. want to add another voice, too, in a beautiful essay in the magazine Taste. So Leho described her parents' arrival in the United States from Vietnam. They ended up in Freeport, Illinois, making do with American staples and some precious imports. And as a snack, they'd get little cheap, paper-thin, cold cuts scattered over jasmine rice, sprinkled with precious drops of Maggie seasoning, as she wrote. And it was delicious. And in that essay... Soleil termed this, uh, came up with a term for this kind of food, assimilation food, dishes made to close the gap between homes, between here and there. Very beautiful and also here to talk about it. Soleil Ho, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you define this particular category of food? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it is... I initially thought about it in opposition to fusion, mm. right, which felt like a very chef-led concept. Of course, you know, you could cite chefs like Wolfgang Puck, for instance, or um, gosh, like Jean-Georges von Richten, right, as being kind of the, the faces of fusion, which was which had its heyday, right, um, and continues to this day with, um, I think, Applebee's, like <laughs> bacon cheeseburger egg rolls and that sort of thing, Um but for me, assimilation food felt more like it was led by immigrants, refugees, you know, migrants and their children who were trying to find something more, you know, that worked in their home kitchens, um, you know, even though they couldn't have access to like the tiendas or like, the markets that they were used to. Because um, I wanted to think about, right, like that dish that you mentioned uh, from my essay of cold cuts served over rice. Like, what do you, what, what is that? Right? Like, it, it felt like something, like something was there, but I didn't really, it didn't make sense to call it fusion. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so did you, you actually saw it like as a way of responding to sort of colonization and marginalization, like that it, that it was that much in opposition to fusion, that it was a way of kind of taking some of this, the power of food back. Right, right. Like the dynamic is completely different in my mind, where you are trying to make a life, you're trying to make things work. It's not necessarily an artistic affectation, yeah. you know, yeah. um, it really is just in the way I thought a lot about how when I was a kid, Vietnamese was my first language. And I was born in Illinois, but I was raised by my grandparents. And I learned how to speak English from Looney Tunes. And, you know, that was, <laughs> for some, it's, in, in my head, it makes sense, right? Where like, you are just using what is around you to make things work. And so how I spoke was a mixture of Vietnamese and like Bugs Bunny. And, Looney, and that right, is what right. assimilation food is. 
our our next door neighbors uh, here on my block, their dad is a Dutch Mexican who was like born in Mexico, grew up speaking Spanish. Their mom is uh, Iranian by way of Germany. And their little daughter, who's three years old, just freely mixes all of the languages, including little hints of English that she's been learning. It sounds like um, e- exactly that kind of situation. Um, in your so in your story uh, on assimilation foods, you also mentioned a few pretty amazing examples. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Yia Vang's uh, spaghetti, mom's spaghetti and meatballs. Oh. <laughs> right. I mean. Yia is a really amazing Hmong chef in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And he, you know, <laughs> he talked to me about just the really sugary kind of soupy uh, spaghetti that he was raised with. And I thought it was a really interesting parallel too, actually, between his experience and um, the experiences of folks who grew up eating um, like bolognese with like beriberi in it mm. uh, for instance in eastern africa uh just the ways in which people kind of used what was put on them um and and fit it into their own sort of paradigms right like you know it wasn't necessarily like a tight italian bolognese that was like uh cooked for hours and hours and hours in, the, in like the sort of old way um it was something that they put into their own frameworks yeah. you know um so to me, the, the spaghetti and meatballs was a really great example because it is just something that they kind of appropriated, right, into their own, like into a Hmong kind of aesthetic, into like an Eastern African aesthetic. Um, and that's how they sort of made this dish, this iconic dish, right, like make sense to them. And I yeah. thought that was really interesting. You know, Luke, it seems like one of the main crossover points between cultures is oftentimes like in the grains, like say in sort of swapping out one noodle for another, you kind of end up, you know, uh, shifting across the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think th- that's totally true. And and I just, you know, Soleil, I'm so glad that you could join us on this show because I remember reading that essay of yours uh, when it came out, you know, whenever it was four or five years ago, and just thinking like, what a smart way like what a great lens that gave me a new vocabulary um, for talking about um, the, the, the basically the food that I was raised on, right? Um, and I think it's also a great lens that you can look at kind of a lot of the shifts in restaurant culture, like restaurant food culture. You know, Soleil was talking about fusion, you know, and I think if, if you're sort of follow the restaurant world now, you, you probably know that fusion is almost like, this thing that's a little bit frowned upon, you know, it's like chefs don't want you to call their food fusion because it has this whiff of, you know, from 20, 30 years ago, where it was very much about like white fine dining chefs cooking primarily for a white audience, um, serving what people like my parents would have called like inauthentic or fake, you know, Asian food or whatever it was. Um, and then, but now instead, you know, Soleil gave one great example of a chef in um, Minnesota. Um, I think about like like the whole trend in Asian American uh, cooking now. You know, starting with someone like Roy Choi um, in Los Angeles, who became famous for cooking these Korean tacos, right? Um, which you know is just a completely different 
point of view where it's because he grew up in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. He grew up eating tacos and loving tacos and loving Mexican food. Um, that was part of how he grew up. And so when he started cooking professionally, it just felt really natural to incorporate something like that into his food. Um, it f felt very, quote unquote, authentic, <laughs> if you will. Um, and I think that's like a lot of if you look around the Bay Area, a lot of the food now, that's that's what it is. It's like you have people who grew up in Oakland or in San Jose or wherever in this very kind of multicultural environment, growing up eating burritos and eating pho and eating like all these different wonderful foods that we have in the Bay Area. And then once they start cooking, it's just like very natural for all of that to get expressed um, mm -hmm. in the food. Alana tweets, as if directly following up on you, Luke, food in Hawaii is the epitome of the idea of, quote, assimilation food. Spam masubi being the specific item that jumps instantly to mind. My mom also made food like this as she was a newcomer to the U.S. from Taiwan in the 1960s. Um, I wanted to bring in another guest to talk about what may be considered the opposite of authenticity along some dimensions. Uh, we've got KQED food reporter Alan Cesaro here with us. Welcome, Alan. Yo, what's going on, Alexis? Hey. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I want you to tell us about this food that you had at a taqueria near your house that incorporates a burrito with flaming hot Cheetos in it. Yeah, no, definitely. So I live in San Pablo, Richmond border, and there's a taqueria that I would always pass by called El Mezcal. And they have these huge signs promoting, um, imagine a Cheetos bag with a burrito stuffed inside of half of the Cheetos bag and just like gooey nacho cheese, carne asada, French fries. And of course, you know, the neon red hot Cheetos just spilling out of it. So I always pass this thing. And I remember one time I posted it on social media. I didn't order it because I was a little bit intimidated. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and dude, like that post on IG went crazy. And all my friends from like Chicago, Mexico, people in Germany that I'd met on my travels were just blowing me up. Like, where, where can you get this? What is this? Um, so basically the story is uh, Jesus Sepulveda, uh, the owner of the taqueria, was struggling during the pandemic as a lot of restaurant and business owners were. Um, and he wanted something to bring in new customers. So he just kind of got this idea um, after going to San Diego and having a California burrito, right, which is a burrito with French fries. And um, he just decided to put in some hot Cheetos. And we live in a heavily Latino, Latinx community. It's right near the high school. Um, so, you know, all these basically <laughs> revived his business, he told me. Um, and when I went in, it was packed, dude, like just like. All these teenage kids were like lining up to get these burritos and some, they also do milkshakes. Um, so it kind of had me thinking about like generational mm -hmm. mashup, if you will. Yeah. I grew up eating hot Cheetos, right? Like I'm the son of Mexican immigrants, single parent home. So hot Cheetos was kind of like, you know, a, a literal meal for me at times. Um, so just kind of taking that concept from certain age brackets and sort of targeting that. Um, and yeah, Jesus kind of hit the, hit the, the flaming Cheetos jackpot with this one. Um, and now it kind of blew up. Cheetos got a hold of it, um, like the actual Cheetos brand. And Chester Cheetah, right? Like the little, the logo guy, the mascot Endorsed of Endorsed by the Cheetah himself. Yeah. yeah. This guy put it, uh, which apparently Chester Cheetah has his own like social media accounts. Uh, and he, he's down, he's down with um, this burrito. So 
Yeah, it's right around the corner and it's only five bucks. So it kind of literally targets that age group that's like young, sort of, you know, loves loves snacking on, you know, food that's maybe not traditionally um, thought of as Mexican, right? It's more of like Mexican-American mishmash. And I love it. You can imagine them like pulling the rumpled $5 bill out of their pocket, you know, or out of their chain wallet. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I'm not going to lie. I hooked up a few kids there and sort of, you know, the taqueria guy wanted to show me different different options of the burrito and then the milkshakes. And I was like, hey, you guys want to help me because I'm one dude here. That's so funny. I, um, I kind of want to contrast the Hot Cheetos burrito with... Diane Kennedy. For those who don't know who she is, she died quite recently. Uh, You know, friend of the show, Danielle Hernandez, wrote a a really beautiful tribute to her in the L.A. Times. And uh, Tejal Rao also wrote a sort of complex piece about her legacy, because one of the things that she did was, you know, she was a a white woman from uh, she's British and she went to Mexico and preserved a bunch of kind of local uh, recipe. So I'm just going to read. Uh, so I'm coming to you on this, and then, but maybe we'll go around the horn here too. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from Tajal Rao's uh, kind of appreciation, or, or, or at least I don't know, attempt at capturing her. Uh, she never backed down from her ludicrous position of dismissing Tex-Mex, California Mexican food, and all of the rich regional cuisines that grew from the Mexican diaspora. She also disparaged creativity and adaptation among Mexican cooks in Mexico who dared to alter classic dishes as she'd recorded them. She imagined dishes as artifacts she could rescue from disappearance, display, and teach, and she did the extraordinary and essential work of documenting so many. And so, I mean, against the backdrop of kind of what we've been talking about, this living, breathing cuisine, what role is there for someone like Diane Kennedy, who did do some, you know, like there are many Mexican dishes I would only know how to make because she went with, you know, somebody's grandma and and learned how to do it. So what do we make of like her legacy? Well, I think it's important, right, to know where you're coming from, to know the past, to know the foundation of cuisine or culture. Um, you know, and I think you can do that without the sort of <laughs> semi-imperialist sense of um, culture being a frozen object. Um, it is constantly iterating upon itself. You know, I, I, I recently talked to someone about chat in India, the sort of street food genre, and how in in India, like, it's, it's, it's a completely different thing now. It has evolved so much, and there are so many uh, different kind of takes that use, you know, crumbled up instant noodles, uh, for instance, or even like potato chips and and, and Cheetos. And um, you wouldn't see the same in sort of diasporic communities, uh, even in the US. So there's a really interesting kind of reverse uh, thing happening as well that I think is, is fun and interesting to talk about. Uh, you see it with Vietnamese food too, actually, where a lot of the Vietnamese American cuisine is very much and I heard an essay about this uh, very much of like the 1960s and the 1970s, mm. whereas like in the, the sort of home country, it is very, very, very different because people just feel freer to innovate. Um, and the, yeah, I, I say that just because her mindset is not necessarily reflective of what actually happens in the world. Um, and I think there are a lot of, I think we struggle in the food world with gatekeeping um, and with 
just people saying like, this is authentic or this isn't authentic, or, you know, this is real blank food and this is not real. Um, and I don't know if that, I don't know what that serves. You know what I mean? Like, does it make people feel more human or like that they belong or that what they're doing, uh, is a valid expression of their identity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We are talking about the foods that immigrants make and eat, authenticity, assimilation foods, mashups of foods. It is a party on the show today. We have a lot of guests. Uh, You just heard Soleil Ho, restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, wrote an amazing uh, essay about assimilation foods, as she she called them. KQED food reporter Alan Cesaro, KQED reporter Aditi Bandlamudi, whose article, The Sizzler, the California origin story behind one of India's flashiest dishes inspired this show. And KQED food editor Luke Sai, of course, this is our latest edition of All You Can Eat, which is uh, all these wonderful food shows we do about Bay Area food cultures with Luke Sai. Uh, we're going to get to a bunch of calls after the break. We'd love to hear from you about the combinations of immigrant and American food that you were served as a kid that you make for your friends or family. The number is 866-733-6786. Or right now the lines are kind of full. So maybe Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, You can comment there, KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I do want to get to some of these comments. Um, Some listeners are kind of uh, writing in with the kind of necessity-born foods, um, of different uh, ethnicities. A listener tweets, toucan casserole, two of any cans in the cabinet cooked with rice or noodles. Dad's spaghetti was spaghetti with ketchup as the sauce. My mom really could cook. My dad and I, not so much. Um, Michael followed my same approach to food uh, during the lockdown. During the lockdown, I would heat a tortilla on a comal till it blistered while reheating leftovers in the microwave. Homemade stir fries worked well as a filling with some sriracha. Going to my earlier point of everything uh, is, can be, or should be tacos. Uh, And Albert writes, back in high school in Indonesia, I made crispy noodles. Here it's what you'd order as a Hong Kong-style chow mein. On one camping trip 30 years ago, I used a pack of ramen, lightly crushed the dry noodles in the pack, then poured over a heated Campbell's cream of chicken. It was a hot item among the friends. I still make it nowadays. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. We're going to get to your calls right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about foods made by immigrants with old world techniques and American supermarket ingredients and all these issues of authenticity, necessity, etc. Joined by KQED food editor Luke Tsai, KQED reporter Aditi Bandlamudi, Soleil Ho, restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, and KQED food reporter Alan Chazara, who told us about a kind of gross, kind of amazing sounding burrito made with hot Cheetos. Let's bring in uh, Rishi in Sunnyvale. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to share a bunch of uh, cool stuff that my wife makes. One of them is pasta salad served at room temperature uh, mixed with chilies, paneer, and Indian chaat masala. Mm. Tastes awesome. <laughs> and... Uh, and then there's one she makes, avocado bhelpuri. It is fairly common in Indian restaurants, but I think she started making it like 15 years ago. So it Wait, and what is it? It's an avocado bread pudding? Uh, avocado bhelpuri. It's a Indian seafood usually made with boiled potatoes, and it's replaced by avocados instead of potatoes. Oh, wow. Oh, man, that sounds so, delicious, yeah. Rishi. Do yeah, you... now, it's fairly common in Indian restaurants, but I think she started making like 15 years ago. Yeah. And I like to think she invented the dish. <laughs> um, do you get involved at all, or you you stay out of the kitchen? Yes, I do, as much as, as, much as I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like to say she's the chef and I'm the cook. Yes, right. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. Out of the... Uh, oh, the end sorry. of the spectrum, there is... There's uh, hash potatoes, hash browns. Uh, so my mom started making it like 40 years ago. And uh, it's uh, potatoes grated, uh, cooked into a pancake style. Just potatoes served with lemon and chaat masala. Ooh. And it's pure carbs and pure heaven. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, uh, Rishi, for, uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, Aditi, have you ever had hash browns done in that style? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, there's it's so funny, like hash browns are when I when I saw hash browns, I actually recognized it as a different dish that I had first eaten that was Indian. So basically we have this thing called um, so we call it alu kura or like alu sabji. It's basically where you take potato and you cut it up into small pieces and then you pan fry it with cumin seeds and with sometimes they'll put turmeric and red chili powder and um, and it's fried. And, you know, you can get hash browns that are either that pancake uh, you know, style, or you can get them like, you know, like potatoes, like breakfast potatoes. Um, when I had gotten breakfast, like hash browns like that. I thought it was alukura um, because that's what we have in South India. That's like what a typical like, you know, weeknight dinner would be. You eat that with rice or, you know, um, roti or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in the Jewish tradition, latkes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. When I first saw latkes, I was like, oh, yeah, I recognize this. Um, let's bring in uh, Cassidy in Oakland. Welcome, Cassidy. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us about your uh, your food. Yeah, yeah. So um, I grew up on I grew up in Maine on welfare, and every month we get this big box of like actual physical food, and it included a whole bunch of stuff. But relevant to this story is a dozen eggs, a box of powdered milk, um, a bunch of uh, saltines. And a block of this 
yellow cheese. It was like American cheese. Um, and my mother, in who really, really loved food, uh, and in an effort to make better food than you could normally make with this stuff, used to make this dish called cheese onion pie, where she would take a bunch of the stuff and she would uh, grill onions. Oh, and there was butter in it also. There's like a pound of butter. Um, so she would take uh, a bunch of those ingredients. She'd take uh, a casserole dish. She'd mash up a sleeve of saltines, melt butter, pour those over it, grill uh, an onion or two in the butter, put those on top, and then uh, shred some of the cheese, put that on top, beat them, uh, make milk, beat eggs into it, pour that over it, bake the entire thing. And essentially what you end up with was like an onion quiche. Uh, and it was really, really delicious to the point where I still make this today is a thing that I'll bring to stuff like uh, Thanksgivings and potlucks and stuff. And I have friends who ask me to bring this dish to things, uh, although I use a better grade of cheese in the modern era. But it was the same kind of thing where it was about what ingredients we had and onions were really cheap. Um, but literally everyone in town thought it was just the greatest thing. The ever. necessity food. All- uh, yeah, that, that becomes transcendent. Um, yeah, thank you for that uh, for that call, Cassidy. And maybe some people will be uh, making that this evening. Uh, I want to get to uh, one more call. Uh, Gorov in uh, Dublin. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, I grew up in Mumbai and I grew up eating Sizzlers. And, you know, as Aditi pointed out, you you eat Sizzlers for like fancy occasions, you would, you know, graduation parties or something that you take your first date for and all that. And uh, back in the day, it was only available in some of those fancy restaurants. I, I think that's more common now. Uh, and when, when I would go eat Sizzlers, at the back of my mind, I always thought, this cannot be just an Indian dish. It has to be, it has to be a combination of something <laughs> more going on here, right? Uh, and so it's great to know that it originated in California, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, as a first generation in the U.S., I make these, uh, me and my wife, we make these really, uh, you know, mashed up dishes, for example, we'll make quesadillas or tacos, just going to the point that you said everything that can be should be made into a taco. You know, just take the chicken from the chicken curry and then grind it and just put it in a quesadilla or tacos. And my four-year-old, he just loves it. He thinks that he's eating taco or quesadillas, actually just eating chicken, you know, curry chicken. Or we'll just rebrand dishes. Like, for example, we'll make a regular curry and then give it to my son as, as like a chicken or rice kind of thing, you know. Uh so it, it's an amazing way. The food is really amazing way to bring so many cultures together. Yeah. Thank or you so much. Those the are... other way oh. Yeah. Oh, oh. Hey, sorry. Oh, no. What were you going to say? Like, in, uh, I was going to say that, you know, do the other way around. Take, make a grilled fish, but then have the fish marinated with all the Indian spices. So literally like a grilled fish with Indian spices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, thanks so much for sharing that. I love uh, imagining your, your four-year-old there with, you know, just food, food dripping off his, off his mouth. That's wonderful. Um, I, uh, we have another, a couple uh, other Sizzler uh, comments coming in, so I just wanted to, to get to those quickly. Anil writes, The Sizzler dish existed in India over 18 years ago. I had taken my Palo Alto colleagues to a Sizzler 
restaurant in India in 2005. Similar idea, but perhaps closer to traditional sizzler dish in the U.S. I'm surprised you didn't mention the similarity to Mexican fajita dishes, where you have similar ingredients, perhaps with the exception of pasta. My guess, this is closer to the Indian version uh, of the dish. Um, I'm going to come to you in a second, but I did want to find out if Soleil had had or heard of uh, the sizzler. Yes. I mean, I've, I think I first had it at um, Zareen's, actually, in the peninsula. Oh. And what did you think of it as a, you know, speaking with your restaurant critic hat on? <laughs> well, I, I love a fajita. So that's uh, amazing. And it, there's actually a very similar kind of feeling to a dish called uh, balne, which is served in a... Um, it's a Vietnamese dish um, that is also served on a cast iron skillet that's like super hot with like some some beef and like onions and yeah, have it with like a fried egg and rice. It's delicious. Um, so there's a there is like a big kind of mm, celebratory feeling to to these things, and it's it's so much like uh, you know Korean like dolsats and um, you know like the superheated stone bowls that you might get with like dolsat bibimbap or or even like the the jigues, right? And it's also like um, the sort of Mexican like mocajetes. Like there's there's this feeling, there's this impulse, I think that transcends culture where like if, if there's a really hot rock at your table, you're like excited. Uh, and I love that. <laughs> I want steam. Um, man, this is, uh, this is a really good idea. This, this is one of our commenters, uh, listener Rebecca writes in to say, my dad, a Mexican immigrant, would make what he called sandwiche. It rhymes with ceviche, but all similarities end there. He would spread leftover refried beans on sliced bread, then top that with processed cheese slices and sometimes avocado. The sandwiche was fried in butter until it was a beautiful brown Mexican version of a grilled cheese. These were often served with salsa and sour cream on the plate for dipping Heaven on white bread. Um, Alan, did you ever make something like that? You know what? I was thinking about it, and not not as elaborate. Um, mine has always just been out of pure necessity. Like if I had <laughs> barbecue sauce in in the cabinet, and my wife wasn't home, so I had spaghetti, and I just threw that together. It was more like that type of stuff. But growing up, you know, single parent home with a working father, it was more like. Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, one day and then the next day, quesadillas. Um, it was very, like, distinct. They weren't mashed together. Um, but I feel like people from my generation kind of took those experiences and then ended up making things later, like the Hot Cheetos burritos that we ate, you know, maybe at lunchtime in high school. And now that we have money and we can open restaurants, we're like, what happens if we mix our nostalgia with with our, you know, our diet? <laughs> yeah, um, right. Yeah, no, but I don't have anything cool like that. It, it was just sort of like, it was always separate for me in my life. Yeah. Um, another one, uh, Luke, I'm going to come to you on this one. Kati writes in to say, I'm so loving this show. My dad's Peruvian and my Midwestern American mom did her best. One of my favorites to this day is papa rellena or stuffed potato, pan-fried mashed potato balls filled with flavorful beef picadillo. Or, uh, as at our house, ground beef and bird's-eye frozen veggies cooked with Larry's taco seasoning mix. I still love it and now make it for myself. I, Luke, as you're kind of listening to all these stories come in, you know, both from the, you know, our guests here on the show and also all the, all the listeners, this is basically, I, I would say, like the purest uh, distillation of your idea for what you're, the kind of food coverage that you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and I love 
the sort of idea too that it's just like the things that people, especially immigrant refugee families, are doing with pantry um, staples that they're able to get uh, just in 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 their uh, neighborhood, you know, uh, corner store. Even um, the sort of like idea of taking like what we might. Uh, call like a struggle food, <laughs> uh, but elevating it, you know, to something that's delicious and and worth savoring. Um, so a- absolutely, I mean, I think of like so many of the the foods that I love. Um, going back to you know a lot of the stories that I've written about, like for instance, garlic noodles and its origin um, as something that like a Vietnamese chef uh, in San Francisco wanted to make as sort of her version of Italian pasta that she was finding in her neighborhood, um, but putting like a ton of butter, uh, a ton of garlic, um, and a ton of MSG (laughs) into it. Um, I I just love all of those sorts of things. And I think like the other thing that this makes me think of as we've been having this conversation, especially thinking about Sizzlers um, that, that Aditi was talking about, is the way that we often think of the way that food culture travels as this sort of one way thing, where Mm -hmm. in the U.S. US, we're just sort of like incorporating or appropriating all of these influences. But like, I feel like I much less frequently think about how the food culture can also travel in the other direction, you know, and so how like a, a, a businessman in Mumbai could find inspiration from like the most generic American <laughs> chain restaurant that you can imagine, right? And I think like anybody who spent time. Uh, for instance, like anyone who's eaten at a pizza hut in Taiwan, you know, or, you know, now you can go to China and you can find like Panda Express style Chinese American food that has for decades been so disparaged as like fake Chinese food. And now you can find like people in China curious <laughs> about this Chinese food that's popular in the U.S. and wanting to try it themselves. Um, or I think about like in Japan, like Yoshoku um, cuisine, which is like a Japanese version of like Western foods, like their version of a burger um, or their version of like uh, Italian pasta and how like they're obviously inspired by Western foods, uh, but have evolved and turned into very much their own thing that's worth celebrating. I think I think that's the thing that I love about food culture is just all of the ways that food sort of travels and it's a way of different cultures communicating with each other. That's great. Um, let's bring in Anne from Martinez. Hello. Hey, Anne. Hi. I um, I just was thinking about a, a name of a food that my father used to make. He was from Wales, and um, he can cook a, a, a dinner always after there had been a roast and there was a little leftover meat. And I hated roast, but I loved slum gullion. And he would use the meat and and add sauces. I don't even know how he did, probably a bouillon cube or something. But... And we would have it with with vegetables. And I wondered if any of you had ever heard of it, because I guess it's really a word that means something like Mark Twain used it or something (laughs) to do with, yeah, yeah, it was something to do with when he came out to California. And we lived in New York, but he he came out to California and had something to do with with gold mining. I I know nothing. We will, I'll... I'll, uh... Oh, 
All right, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll toss them to him in just one second. I want to get to one last uh, caller, Faye in San Francisco. Hi there, thanks for having me. Oh, so funny, chili spaghetti, which originated in Hawaii lunch trucks that we call food trucks now, lunch trucks and diners, and we used to go there when I was a kid. And I was talking to my boyfriend. I'm 63 now. I'm talking to my boyfriend about it, and he said, "Hey, my dad made that for us." When his, you know, when his mom was in the hospital, when oh, he was little, and that no he kidding. spent time in Hawaii during World War II, his dad. So I thought, oh my gosh, he must have gotten it from Hawaii. He must have had it in Hawaii. He pulled out that Hormel chili can, can and boiled noodles and put it on. And that was a meal. <laughs> oh, man. I, that actually does. I don't know why I've never thought of doing that. It certainly um, earlier in my 20s before I actually knew how to cook. I'm surprised I didn't come up with that. Um, <laughs> thank you uh, yeah. so much for that, uh, for Faye. Yeah. And I wonder, um, last uh, thing, Soleil or Luke, have you heard of Slumgolian? I have not. I Soleil? haven't either. Yeah. I mean... The Welsh, the Welsh cuisine. Um, last uh, couple of comments as I kind of race through here. Mara writes, I'm a first-generation Latvian-American. My mom is a wonderful cook, but when we were younger, there were a few types of cuisine that eluded her amazing skills. Italian foods always turned out tasting more like Latvian comfort food than true Italian cuisine. A profuse use of dill tended to throw things off, and sour cream was a necessary staple, and it went on everything. Potatoes, pasta, soups, and meats. Uh, Amelia tweets, delicious program. Fortunate to have met Diane Kennedy, who treasured Mexican cuisine. But I enjoy a fusion of Mexican and Asian cuisines. Last one, Tina tweets, my dad emigrated to the U.S. from Italy, and he would add small pasta shells and Parmesan cheese to Campbell's bean with bacon soup to make an Italian-American version of pasta e fagioli. I still make it for myself as a comfort food when I'm missing my dad. Thank you so much to all of you who joined us. We've been talking about foods made by immigrants with old world techniques and American supermarket ingredients. We've been joined by KQED food editor Luke Sai, KQED reporter Adity Bandlamudi. Her article, The Sizzler, The California Origin Story, behind one of India's flashiest dishes, inspired the show. Soleil Ho, restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. They are so good at that job. KQED food reporter Alan Cesaro. Always love having you on. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you to our listeners as well. I loved hearing all of your stories too. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.